Hello, this is retired Army First Sergeant Mark Flowers with another episode of the Fix Bayonets podcast, Military History You Didn't Learn in School. I am recording this episode in September 2020, and this is the 30th anniversary of Operation Desert Shield, which began in August 1990. This is the first of several episodes that I'll be presenting in the coming months to commemorate Desert Shield and Desert Storm. I'm going to focus primarily on the soldier's perspective of the war. And so today, we're taking a look back at the events that led up to the start of Desert Shield. On August 2nd, 1990, Iraq invaded Kuwait with four heavy divisions of the Republican Guards. They were spearheaded by a division's worth of special operations forces with helicopter support. The Iraqis quickly overcame Kuwait's small army. Although the Kuwaitis fought bravely, they couldn't stop the Iraqi advance. And after securing their foothold in Kuwait, the Iraqi army massed on the border with Saudi Arabia. And for a time, it looked like they were going to continue their assault into northern Saudi Arabia. This naked aggression was really the reason for Operation Desert Shield, which began with the defense of Saudi Arabia. The story of the Gulf War actually begins in 1979 with the Islamic Revolution in Iran that overthrew the Shah. This episode was especially painful for Americans. When they overthrew the Iranian government, the revolutionaries took the staff of the U.S. Embassy in Tehran hostage. The hostages weren't released until January of 1981 when President Reagan was inaugurated. To the west of Iran, Saddam Hussein and his henchmen watched the revolution warily. While it goes beyond the scope of this episode to get into specifics, we can suffice to say that the Iraqis sensed weakness in their neighboring country. In September 1980, war broke out between Iraq and Iran. Like many wars, a border dispute preceded the start of hostilities. The Shat al-Arab was a key waterway to the Persian Gulf and a sore spot between both countries for many years before the war. Saddam Hussein used this border dispute as a pretext to launch an invasion of Iran. The Iraqis began the war with an armored ground assault against the Iranians. The Iraqi Air Force attacked not only tactical targets in support of the army, but also deep targets in an attempt to destroy the Iranian Air Force. The Iranians resisted the invasion tooth and nail, and eventually, after bloody battles, they stopped the Iraqi invaders. But that didn't end the war. It devolved into a stalemate, and over the next eight years, both countries were locked in a gigantic struggle that we knew little about in the West. As a matter of fact, outside of the Middle East, the war wasn't really covered much in the press at all. But it became a fight to the death between these two countries, each ruled by a totalitarian government, one based on a strict interpretation of Shia Islam and the other a Baathist socialist party with a cult of personality. The war drug on year after grinding year, the fighting sometimes achieving a level of intensity 
that had not been seen since the darkest days of World War II. And in fact, many of the battles were as bloody and futile and brutal as the worst periods of World War I. Over the course of the war, each country tried to adapt their armed forces to this reality that they faced. The Iranians were cut off from the Western sources that had supplied the Shah with arms and ammunition and equipment. The Iranians had built their army under the Shah using modern weapons such as the Chieftain Main Battle Tank from the United Kingdom, M113 armored personnel carriers from the U.S., our tow missiles, and other sophisticated weapons. And so these were mostly intact when the war started, but the Iranians did not have the ability to get spare parts or repair their damaged equipment. And so the Iranians adopted an infantry-centric approach to the war. They began sending waves of soldiers to batter the Iraqi defenses and open lanes for their limited armored units to penetrate. This kind of warfare was incredibly costly in human lives, and the Iranians, as a result, lost hundreds of thousands of soldiers, some as young as 10 or 11 years old. They also sent older men into battle, upwards of 70 years, and it would be an oversimplification to call these tactics uh, like bonsai charges or that kind of thing, because they were more prepared than that, and they had specific objectives for the units, but nevertheless, thousands and thousands of their soldiers went into combat with the expectation that they would not come back alive. On the Iraqi side, China and the Soviet Union supplied most of the heavy equipment for the Iraqi army. And over the years, the Iraqis lost massive amounts of men and equipment in the face of Iran's human wave tactics. And so the Iraqi army also adapted. And they learned to build large triangular-shaped forts that contained tanks, infantry, and artillery that were interlocked with other desert forts to slow, channelize, and ultimately destroy Iranian attacks. They also developed, in the course of the war, a fairly sophisticated capability to put core-sized armored units into the field and sustain them for attacks. And so as the war became an existential fight for survival between these two dictatorships, some of the worst atrocities of the 20th century were committed. The Iraqis used poison gas on a massive scale. And as with World War II, cities became targets for air raids and missile strikes. And at the end of it all, in 1988, the two countries were essentially right where they started eight years previously. Just after the war ended, the Iraqis launched an offensive against the Kurdish enclaves in the north of the country. They used attack helicopters, combat aircraft, and chemical weapons to kill at least 5,000 unarmed Kurdish civilians and citizens of Iraq. And as a result of this carnage, at least 100,000 Kurds were forced to flee the country into Turkey for refuge. The Iraqi army fought for eight years against the Iranians. Over that time, they stumbled, learned, and adapted to their environment. After their first stumble and steps in 1980, they developed the ability to plan, 
mass and launch attacks on a large scale. And in particular, the Iraqis developed an offensive mindset that helped bring about the end of the war in 1988. Most of what we know today about the Iraqi army, how they thought, how they operated, and how they fought, was learned during and after the Gulf War in 1991. It's important to remember that in August 1990, we knew very little of that. But here are just a few of the things that we did know about the Iraqis as we moved into Desert Shield. In 1990, the Iraqis had the fourth largest army in the world. They had eight years of combat experience, not just tactical combat, but operations on a large scale. And they knew how to fight and sustain across a long period of time. They understood how to fight in combined arms teams. They knew how to breach minefields in the face of enemy fire with engineers and infantry. They knew how to use tanks, both as an offensive weapon and in the defense. They were adept at the use of artillery, and they were capable of massing fires on a scale not seen since World War II. They knew how to layer anti-tank defenses to achieve maximum results. They were experienced at fighting in a chemical environment, and we knew that they were more than ready to use chemical weapons if it suited their purposes. They were equipped with combat helicopters and understood the tactic of hunter-killer teams. Many of the Iraqi army's top commanders attended military schools in the Soviet Union, and so they understood staff planning, preparation, and the orders process and were skilled at large-scale operations. I would like to talk just a bit about the Republican Guards, which began as a palace guard designed to secure Saddam's place as the ruler of Iraq. And initially, it was a political force, not necessarily a military one. Over the course of the war, the Republican Guards grew both in size and in the scope of their missions. They never lost their role as a political palace guard to ensure the continuation of the regime. But on the battlefield, they became a spearhead and were sent in for tough assignments against the heaviest Iranian defenses. And so they received tanks, armored personnel carriers, top-of-the-line equipment to accomplish these missions. After the war ended, the Republican Guards grew in size, and again, their mission scope increased, but they never lost their political responsibility as shock troops for the Saddam regime. And so, over the course of time, the Iraqi ground forces evolved into a two-tiered system. The Republican guards answering only to Saddam, and the rest of the army who answered to the high command. Very much like the system that existed in Germany during World War II, the Republican Guards took on a role similar to the Waffen-SS, and the rest of the army had to make do with what was available, because the best was skimmed off for the Guards. And because Republican Guard commanders received bonuses, prizes, and gifts of land and weapons and other items from the government, they were highly reliable. And so when it came time to call on an invading force against Kuwait, there was never any doubt that the Republican Guards would act as the spearhead. And in August 1990, 
they put 100,000 troops in the field in Kuwait against a force of only 16,000. And had they chosen to, they could have rolled into Saudi Arabia with little in the way to stop or slow them. As the Iran-Iraq war progressed in the 1980s, we in the U.S. Army were devoted to a yearly cycle of training that put us on gunnery ranges, into the field, and on deployments to maintain our combat readiness. And although our force was positioned in Europe to defeat a potential Soviet invasion, the skills that we became adept at and skilled at were ones that would apply directly into the coming conflict in Desert Storm. In the United States, Army forces deployed combat brigade-sized units to the National Training Center at Fort Irwin on a regular basis. And there, we confronted a realistic, tough, and determined opponent that knew the terrain and how to exploit our weaknesses to teach us how to survive in a real war. In the years after the Vietnam War, the Army really reinvented itself as a combat force and American institution. And by the 1980s, the Army was a great place to serve. We had top-of-the-line equipment, outstanding training resources and facilities, good soldiers, we were paid well, and we knew that we had an important job to perform in Europe. And it was an accident of history, really, that the invasion of Kuwait occurred at the high point for the U.S. Army in the post-Cold War world. And we were able to leverage all that we had developed and built in the army into a winning team that was first able to defend Saudi Arabia, then develop an offensive option, and finally to liberate the country of Kuwait. Another area where the U.S. Army excelled was in the field of logistics. They say amateurs talk tactics and professionals talk logistics. And we in the army were accustomed to deploying on large operations to different parts of the world. We conducted Reforger each year in Germany, the redeployment of forces to Germany, which saw tens of thousands of soldiers and thousands of pieces of equipment shipped across the ocean to Europe for exercises. We conducted similar exercises each year in Korea under the Team Spirit operation. We were sending forces to Egypt to conduct Bright Star exercises. The Army conducted combat operations in Panama and Grenada and deployed forces to South America and Central America. So in 1990, when the call went out for the Army to project power to Saudi Arabia from the United States and Europe, the Army was ready. It wasn't a matter of if they could do it, but how the Army was going to achieve this massive logistical undertaking. I hope you've enjoyed this look back at the circumstances and events surrounding the beginning of Desert Shield in 1990. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Fixed Bayonets podcast, Military History You Didn't Learn in School. I hope you'll check out my website, fixedbayonets.us, and you can also find me on Facebook. Until the next time, this is retired First Sergeant Mark Flowers signing off.